Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. The world is reeling. From probably Tom Holland, the greatest shock in sporting history, certainly in the history of monarchical sport, in which we have been specialising on the rest is history in the last week or so. Because this week, King Athelstan defeated Elizabeth I to become the greatest monarch in England's history. A shot heard around the world, Tom. Absolutely. And for those who haven't been keeping abreast of the sports news, we should explain that uh, the past week we've been running a World Cup of uh, the Kings and Queens of England. Now, some people have pointed out that if it's the Kings and Queens of England, how can it be a World Cup? That is ludicrous pedantry, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like the World Series. Yeah. It's like the World Series. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've so... got Anglo-Saxons in there. We've got, we had a Dane. We've yeah. had yeah. Normans. Yes. I mean, it's a genuinely cosmopolitan, inclusive and diverse tournament. We had an Empress of India. We did. We did. <laughs> we did. Yeah. An Empress yeah. and an Emperor of India. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we had it all. Yeah. So it's so a properly World Cup. Um, and we had uh, we had a Super 16 round, then we had quarterfinals, then we had semifinals, and then we had a final. But but normally what we do in these World Cups, and we've done Prime Ministers before, we've done Gods, is that we, we go through the various rounds and then we come to the winner at the end. But this time, as you have said, the winner is so unexpected. A, a, a king that many people, certainly readers of the Daily Mail, judging by their comments on the, the report on this that appeared in the Daily Mail today, have never even heard of. Um, and uh, Darren, Darren Jalland... On uh, on Twitter, so Athelstan is the Emma Raducanu of monarchs because the yeah. winner was Athelstan. Extraordinary! So eighty four thousand votes were cast in this tournament. Athelstan defied the odds to get to the final, and then he was up against the prohibitive favourite Elizabeth I. Now, if you're interested in Elizabeth I, we did a podcast with the brilliant Tracy Borman, didn't we? Yes. Um, some months ago, in the in the sort of back in the mists of time when this podcast was but a stripling. Um, so you should go to that to find out about Elizabeth I, but we thought we absolutely had to go in with a special Athelstan-themed edition, partly actually, Tom, because the... Uh, how shall I put this? We're not used on The Rest is History to being in the glare <laughs> of the international spotlight, but the world's reaction yeah. to the final rather yeah, took us yeah. by yeah. surprise, didn't yeah. it? Feature, it's featured in uh, Breakfast TV. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Two breakfast TV channels, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Uh, uh, what used to be the broadsheets, a big, big feature in the Times, uh, the tabloids, the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail website, which is, I think, the world's most read English language news website, had a feature on this. And as is their want, the readers of Mail Online uh, decided to have their say, didn't they? And they, so I've got a digest here. I've printed out some of the best comments. So the one that caught my eye initially was, what rubbish, never heard of him. Uh, he sounds like a country in South Asia. <laughs> Yeah, that's very Daily Mail. <laughs> and then uh, then it started to get going. Woke nonsense again. Lefty historians trying to erase the history and undermine the authority of Queen Elizabeth in favour of some bloke no one's heard of just to appease the anti-monarchist rabble. Well, they've they've nailed you, haven't they? They have indeed. It's a dangerous Marxist lefty. Just shows how out of touch these academics are. <laughs> Never heard of him. What woke tosh. So yeah. 
So I won't just read a couple more, Tom, because oh, yeah. I think that they reach a climax. So there's this one, which I think is probably from your brother. Athelstan was a total lad, kind to his mother, nice to animals, <laughs> respectful, if a little socially awkward around the ladies, always up for some jocular banter down the pub, total lad. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, pretty accurate, actually. And then the two my three favourites, a man called Mally, or a woman called Mally, um, said, historians, nice job if you can get it. <laughs> which I believe is a reference to the presenters of this podcast. And finally, It's Grim Up North said, what's a podcast? That's a very good um, question. I would have asked so- the same question a year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, this is a, this is a result that got the nation talking. Now, Athelstan, let's, let's get into the, put aside the media, the media furore. We're never ones for, for the, for the media bubble, are we? No. Um, let's talk about the man himself and his times. So we are talking what, ninth, 10th century, Tom? We're talking 10th century, early 10th century. Uh, and I think that it would be appropriate at this stage um, to quote something that um, a man who I think ranks as Athelstan's coach, the man who, who's played a crucial role in getting to them to this startling position at, at the very pinnacle of monarchical sport. And that is the great Michael Wood. Yep, but the great chronicler. Of the, the great yeah. Michael Wood, who's, who, who's come on the podcast to talk about the history of China, but who I first came across... Uh, years and years ago when I was very, very young. And he did a brilliant series on, on the BBC called uh, In Search of the Dark Ages. That is a brilliant series. It's a fabulous series. And one of the, uh, one of the, the, the figures from the Dark Ages, inverted commas, that, that Michael did an episode on was Athelstan. Um, and since then, he's also done a wonderful three part series on Athelstan, on Athelstan's father, Edward and mother uh, and aunt Athelflad and his grandfather, Alfred the Great. Yeah. And Michael summed up Athelstan's achievements thus. Athelstan is unseeded today. He always was. But let's not forget that he is the great early innovator. His vision laid down the template for English law, coinage, culture, assembly politics, and sacred geography. He is the forgotten presiding genius of England, but this can be rectified. Well, forgotten no more. <laughs> he posted that before this stunning result came through, and he's absolutely right. So huge credit, obviously, to, to Athelstan, the lad done good, <laughs> but huge credit as well, I think, to, to Michael Wood, who has always been a stalwart champion of him and certainly influenced me in my great interest in this astonishing figure. So, I mean, you've written a book on Athelstan, haven't you? You've written, you've written the book in the Penguin Monarch series. I did, and, and this goes back to um, something that we were talking about in the, the preview uh, to this World Cup, where we were talking about what the, the qualification requirements were. And there was a lot of discussion about why Alfred the Great wasn't in this, and you were quite keen to have him. But I, I stand by the argument that really, if you're talking about kings and queens of England, you have to begin with Athelstan, because Athelstan is the first king who rules a political entity that we can recognise as being something called England. Yeah. So in that case, Tom, give us some context. So Athelstan is born in, what, 894? Um, so at the that, very end of yeah. the, no, the the ninth century AD, so the Romans are long gone. Yeah. Um, uh, what we now think of as England has been a series of fragmented kingdoms that have since come under like Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that have since come under Danish attack or Dan or, or yeah. I mean, is attack the right word or is it migration? I don't know what what word historians would choose. Now. I think it's attack. Um, so essentially, the context is there are there are four major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Three of these are inhabited by people who define themselves as Angli, as, as Anglians, 
Uh, And this will become the base word for English. And I think this is one of the reasons why this period is so confusing and perhaps why Athelstan is is relatively forgotten, is that this is a period where the meaning of words are in the process of migration. But in the ninth century, we can call them, let's call them Anglians. And these are the, the the kingdoms of Northumbria in the north from the Firth of Forth, kind of down to the Humber, as the name implies. Mercia, which is basically the Midlands. Yeah. East Anglia, East Anglia, <laughs> and then a, a, a Saxon kingdom, the kingdom of the West Saxons, which by this point spans Cornwall to Kent. Yeah. So basically the whole of the south of England, yeah. what we would now think of. And the Vikings come crashing into this and they overturn Northumbria, they overturn East Anglia, they conquer Mercia, and then they're moving in to dismember Wessex, the last Anglo-Saxon kingdom that is is independent. And of course, the man who defies them, who throws them back, who sets Wessex up on incredibly firm foundations is Alfred. And that's why he's called the Great. Alfred dies in 899 and he leaves behind as rulers of this kind of kingdom that he's forged, uh, his son, Edward, but also his eldest child, his daughter, Athelflaed. Who you've also written about. Who I've also written about, who is also a key figure in this. So if we think of Alfred and Edward and Athelstan as the founding fathers of England, we should think of Athelflaed as the founding mother, because she plays the key role in in effectively joining Mercia and Wessex in a kind of Anglo-Saxon united kingdom. Because by the terms of the peace treaty that Alfred signed with the Danes, with Guthrum, the king that Mm -hmm. he defeated... Um, the Kingdom of Mercia was essentially divided in two. And a li- if you imagine a line running from uh, from the Mersey down to the Thames estuary, down to London, um, yeah. the Danes take the eastern half of that. So that's the Dane law. The Dane right? becomes the Dane law, as it's later known. Um, and the western half comes under the authority of Alfred as King of Wessex. But Alfred is playing a very careful game because he wants to keep the Mercians on board. He doesn't want to humiliate them. He doesn't want to imply that they've been subordinated to West Saxon power. So he enshrines as a, a sub-regulus, a kind of junior king, the most eminent of the um, of, of the Mercian noblemen, a man called Ethelred. He's a weasel in the last kingdom. He, the yes, Burn he is. But there's absolutely stories. no evidence at all for that. In, right. uh, in the sources. He's, he's a, a kind of a loyal and a potent ally of Edward in fighting the, yeah. uh, the, the Danes. Um, and he marries Athelflaed. And he, Athelf- Athelred has this kind of ambiguous status. So is he a king? Is he a lord? What is he? he so he, he gets this title, Mirkna Clafford, Lord of the Mercians. And He's quite elderly by the time he marries Athelflaed. He dies. Athelflaed takes over. Yeah. And she is hailed as Mirkna Hlafdiga, the Lady of the Mercians. And she plays this kind of key role in reconciling the Mercians to the overlordship of her brother, Edward, who is King of Wessex. And this is the context into which Athelstan as a child is growing up. So they are moving together, Mercia and Wessex, basically. Potentially, are, but there's yeah. also equally always the potential that they might split asunder. Exactly. So, so Edward, this is Edward the Elder, is it? Uh, Alfred the Great's Yeah, well, he's, son he, he is... comes to be known as Edward the Elder because you later have Edward the Martyr and Edward the Confessor. Right. Um, so he's the first, he's the, he's not Edward the First, but he's the first person called He's Edward. the first king to be called Ed, yeah. Edward. Yeah. And he dies, does he, in 890, in, no, in well, nine, well, 
what? Well, it, it, 924. But before 94. that, let's, let's look at, at the, the childhood of Athelstan. Okay, very good. Yes, you're quite right. A- another reason, I think, why um, this period is so complicated is that the names are very... <laughs> Yeah. very difficult they're great names though they I are great they, names. we should bring back so, these names so edward edward is one of the few names that because edward the first is given it um in honor of edward the confessor that has kind of survived into the modern period but there are lots that haven't so edward is a very married king he's up there with edward with henry the eighth he's always marrying women dumping them marrying other ones not right. i think because he's incredibly promiscuous or anything but because he's kind of maneuvering to yeah. kind of build up his power. The first woman that he marries is a woman called Eggwin. Right. Which which doesn't mean that you won an egg. It's it means sword joy. That's a great name. Sword joy. And and Athelstan is their elder son. And yeah. what then happens is that Eggwin either dies or she gets pushed to one side because um uh, Edward needs to marry a, a, a kind of um someone who is who will knit the the family of uh, uh, Alfred together because there are kind of fissures, there are ruptures developing. So he marries um uh, this woman called Alflad, who is kind of distantly related to Edward, um and they then have uh, two children, Elfweird, 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 that's a great name, and Edwin. Okay, and the problem for Athelstan is that they are now kind of like the superior heirs. Yeah, because they're in situ kind of thing. Absolutely. Right? So Athelstan, although the elder, has now become supernumerary and is a slight embarrassment. So now, he must wh- be fearing for his life, presumably. Mm, well, Alfred, his grandfather, is clearly very, very fond of him, clearly admires him. Um, mm-hmm. Alfred is a great warrior, but is also a great patron of learning. And Athelstan in due course as well will come to be a great warrior and a great patron of learning. So I think although... It's always dangerous to extrapolate. I think you could, I think it's not extreme to say that, that Athelstan probably was a favorite of Alfred. But hold on. What, how old is he at this point? How old is he's he? A young he's a boy. favorite. He's a young boy. So he's like probably five six or, or six. seven, five, six or seven. So Alfred like the Great is delighted that Athelstan can like read or something. That kind and, of thing. Yeah. And, he can count. and there's a story that's told by William of Malmesbury, who's a great fan of Athelstan, an Anglo English monk writing at Malmesbury in Wiltshire which will yep. play a key role in the story of Athelstan. And he tells the story of, of Athelstan that when he was a boy, Alfred gives him a, a sword belt and a cloak. And this echoes something that had happened to Alfred when he was a boy and he had gone on pilgrimage to Rome where he'd met the Pope. And the Pope had given him a chingulum, which is a kind of sword belt that high military officials in the Roman Empire had worn. And yep. he, the Pope had given him the, the raiment of a consul, the cloak of a consul. So That's very good. I like so this. Alfred, Alfred, as a young boy, had been given this as a token of his kind of future status as perhaps a figure of Roman imperial power. And right. so, it, it, again, I think it's not too extreme to see that this story perhaps preserves a sense in which Alfred is casting Athelstan as a figure of Roman. Did he give him the same ones? That's the we question. We don't know. We don't know. Let's, say, don't let's know. say that he let's, did. Let's say he did. It's very let's kind of Andriel, the flame of the West from it the Lord is. of the Rings, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely <laughs> is. And this, of course, Tolkien is knows all this stuff. So it's, it's yeah. all the kind of material that is feeding into Lord of the Rings. So Athelstan is basically Aragorn, isn't he? Mm, you could say that, perhaps. Except oh, he, well, very good. Yeah. Very good. Um, Although there is actually another fantasy parallel that we'll come to at the end of this one that, that I think is, e- is even more interesting. It's not Tony Blair again, is it? It's not Tony Blair. No, it's not Tony Blair. Um, so, so Alfred dies. Edward becomes king. Athelstan is a problem. So what to do with him? 
So again, according to William of Malmesbury, this is a late, yeah. you know, this is late testimony, but all the evidence supports it. Um, Athelstan is sent to his aunt. To Athelflad. To Athelflad in, in Mercia. Mercia. So he's hanging around in like Wolverhampton or something. He's hanging out in Wolverhampton. Exactly. And, um, because they have a battle there, don't they? Of course, in Tenhall. Well, they do. So, so, so Athelflad, although a woman is, very much a chip off the Alfredian block. She's very like her father. Again, she is um, a great warrior, amazingly, for a woman in this period. Um, she's very, very devout. Um, and she is a, a great patron of learning. And she absolutely recognises the fact that um, the key to establishing her, the future of, of English rule, of Anglo-Saxon rule, is to plant what are called burrs. Yeah, kind of great towns, fortified basically. market fortified towns. towns. Yes. Yeah. And the way to protect these towns is to obtain the relics of saints because they then exert a kind of a, a, a protective screen over these towns rather than the way that Reagan wanted Star Wars to protect. Uh, <laughs> That's a good comparison. <laughs> to protect America. And so the key, the key relics of a saint that she gets is the king of a Northumbrian saint called Oswald, who was a kind of warrior saint. Yeah. Uh, which was buried in a, a um, uh, a monastery um, in Lincolnshire called Bardney, which had been destroyed by the uh, the Vikings. She sends a kind of raiding party to get these relics, brings them back. She puts them in Gloucester so that Gloucester will then become the kind of the great capital for, for her right. power. Um, and the Vikings are incredibly cross about this. And they send a kind of vast raiding party sweeping into Mercia. They go deep into the bowels of Mercia, are then returning. And it's at Wolverhampton, <laughs> or more properly so. Tettenhall, yeah. that they get ambushed by... The, the forces of Wessex and Mercia, and they get slaughtered. Yeah. And we're the told that the three, country. three the kings of, get sent Noddy down. Holder. Yeah. Three <laughs> kings get sent down to the infernal regions and they perish under a rain of spears and swords. And this Very is Athelstan's great victory. Yeah. Um, so Athelstan is clearly learning at the feet. I think not just of Athelflad, but also of, of Ethelred as well. And that's why I, another reason I think for, for, for thinking that Bernard Cole's portrayal of him as a weasel is unfair because, um, Athelstan makes a vow to Athelred and that, that he will kind of show him respect when and if he becomes king. And when he does, almost the first thing he does is, is to go and, and kind of show his respect at the, the tomb of Athelred in the, the shrine of St. Oswald uh, that they've built in, in Gloucester. So at that point, Tom, he's, he's in Mercia. Um, he's yeah. what, is he in his teens? So he's in his teens. And so he's watching his aunt um, slowly prepare for a war of conquest, reconquest. So going across this line of birds that they've built from the, from the, from the Mersey down to the, down to, down to London. Um, and 917 is the key year. Edward from Wessex launches a, a, a war of conquest against East Anglia. And basically by the end of the year, he's conquered the whole of East Anglia. He's annexed yep. that to his kingdom. Athelflad, meanwhile, is leading um, uh, campaigns against the various kind of um, boroughs of uh, the Eastern Midlands. So um, Derby, Leicester, Lincoln, and yep. so on. And basically by um, 918, everywhere south of the Mersey and the Humber has become a part of this kind of West Saxon, Anglo-Saxon, whatever you want to call it, kingdom. Yeah. So to just interrupt you there, Tom. So there is an element, therefore. I mean, obviously, to do a World Cup of Kings, it's very kind of great man history, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's very Victorian kind of wiggery. Yeah. So there is an element, clearly, that irrespective of Athelstan's merits, he is standing on the foundations that have Completely. already been built by his aunt, his father, and his grandfather. 
Absolutely. Um, so this isn't something that he's that his later achievements are not purely self-generated. No, they are. No, he is, he, yeah, his they'd be inconceivable. They'd be inconceivable without the achievements of his father, his aunt, and his his grandfather. And he would never have denied that. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's that's the significance of the respect that he pays. Um, and one quick other question, just about the context. So, why is it that the Anglo-Saxons, having been on the receiving end of the Vikings for a reasonably long time, what, how is it they've suddenly been able to basically launch this fight back and to start pushing the Vikings back? Is it is it that they were previously divided and are now united? Do they have some kind of, you know, what, what is giving them, what has turned the tide? Or is it just a series of contingencies? Well, I think the two two principal answers to that question. The first is that because the, uh, the, the Anglian kingdoms have essentially been destroyed, Wessex becomes the focus, not just for, for West Saxon hopes, but for Anglian hopes as well. Right. And, be- and because the West Saxon kings are very diplomatic, they tread very, very carefully. They they do not try and imply that um, the Angles of East Anglia or of Mercia are being absorbed into a West Saxon empire. Um, they're able to construct this identity that Alfred yeah. and his heirs describe as Angle, you know, he's Rex Anglo-Saxon and the king of the Anglo-Saxons. So they basically invent Anglo-Saxondom yes, as, they a, do. as a political means of uniting yes. these previously disparate kingdoms. And it's really telling that we live in a country that's that's called England rather than, say, Sax- Saxonland. You know, yeah. there are people who call this this kind well, the, of... The Welsh, or the Scots the, call us, well, the Scots call us Sassanaks. But but there are that you know there are scribes at the West Saxon court who do call this kind of proto kingdom Saxonia, but in the long run it comes to be called Anglia Anglaland England, because the West Saxons are not chauvinist about being Saxon. Yeah. Does that mean though, Tom, that there is an idea of England and of commonality before the conquest the reconquest happens? Or- right, there is, there is, which is uh, so, so. This uh, the the principal spokesman for this is Bede, yeah, uh, writing you know. Set, couple of centuries earlier um and he of course is writing the history of the church and he casts the angles and by extension the saxons as a kind of not exactly a chosen people but he models their history on the history of the israelites and he casts them as a kind of holy people yeah there's an idea of them as a people apart kind of thing yes absolutely and and that is something that alfred in particular is very keen on he he translates um uh, Bede's Latin history into English. Um, he sponsors this idea that there is an Anglo-Saxon church, uh, and and that's essentially another key reason why England becomes England rather than Saxon land. Okay, we've lost um, control, Tom. No, we, we haven't. We haven't. We haven't because this is also stamp. no, we haven't because this is also part. You you were asking why you know wh- wh- why is uh, wh- why the Anglo-Saxons are able to launch this war of conquest. Yeah. So the 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 other reason is precisely that Alfred and Edward and Athelflaed lay very, very firm foundations and constructing the idea of, of the English as a, uh, the Anglo-Saxons as a Christian people is one of them. But the other key one is, is that they construct an economic base and that's what the Burrs are for. So the Burrs are fortresses, but they're also markets and these markets generate silver and silver enables them to fund armies. Right, and of course. basically, yeah. you know, I, I've got, a, I've got a coin which was minted in East Anglia and taken by a Viking pilgrim to Rome, that is a fake. It's it's um, pretending to be uh, minted by Edward. And so what's that, what that is showing is that even before Edward conquers East Anglia, the Vikings of East Anglia are becoming kind of subordinate both to the spiritual and the economic power of the West Saxon monarchy. Um, 
and and that 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 the effort required to build these birds is is enormous. I mean, it, you know, it's it's kind of we're talking kind of building pyramid scale level of yeah. effort. It's vast percentages of uh, of of the population are engaged in building these fortresses, and it means that when the war is la- launched in um, in uh, nine seventeen, the Vikings are totally crushed. Yeah. Um, now. On the on the on the dynastic level, what what happens in nine um, eighteen on the twelfth of June is Athelflaed dies, and Edward basically moves in immediately. So so Athelflaed has left a daughter Alflaed, um, who is packed off to a nunnery. Right. Uh, Edward essentially becomes king of Mercia. The Mercians seem to swallow this, and one of the reasons that the Mercians swallow this probably is that Edward moves up from Winchester, the capital of Wessex up to uh Chester which is this great fortress Roman fortress that Athelflaed has re has, has kind of revived yeah um and Athelstan is with him and Athelstan so, seems to be seen by the Mercians as a kind of Mercian prince so they basically think we'll accept Edward because Athelstan is coming next and he's kind of one of us because he's been here for so long is that right that's certainly part of it the other part of it is that the Vikings are still a threat in the north because they there's a kind of dynasty that occupies both Dublin and York. And so, you know, the Mersey is a kind of key transit zone for them. Yeah. Um, and that makes it dangerous for people on the Mersey frontier. So Edward's power, therefore, is something very welcome and yeah. Athelstan's role as well. And in the last years of his life, Edward is kind of pushing, you know, he's looking towards Northumbria. He plants um, uh, the first... Um, Anglo-Saxon fort north of the line of the Mersey Humber uh, in an old Roman fort. Do you know what that Roman fort was? Uh, the, an old Roman fort north of the Humber. Yeah, north of the Mersey and Humber, just north of it. Um, Wigan. Manche- <laughs> Manchester. Manchester, very Manchester. good. I thought Manchester would be too obvious. That's why I didn't guess no, Manchester. No, no, it's, it's in Manchester. So 94, Edward dies just south of yeah. Chester, seemingly involved, maybe fighting the Welsh, maybe fighting the Vikings, not sure. Okay. And, and so then the question is, who succeeds? Because you'll remember the brilliantly named Alfweird, Athelstan's younger half-brother, who yes. has been growing up in Winchester as the Crown Prince of Wessex. Athelstan is in, the, is in Mercia. The Mercian lords immediately hail him as King of Mercia. The Wessexan lords seem to hail Alfweird as King of mm. Wessex. So Civil things war. are not looking good. And Alfweird leads an army northwards to Oxford, where he dies. Well, that's convenient. Very convenient. Um, and so you might think too convenient. There is, I mean, it has to be said that there is no, there's no mention in any source of any foul play at all. But is that not because the sources are incredibly partisan and pro Athelstan, so they wouldn't mention it? They're not. They're not pro Athelstan because um, people in Wessex are are very hostile to him. And okay. The, the, the monks and scribes in Winchester. Are, are very very hostile to Athelstan. They see him as a kind of Mercian intruder, yeah. uh, and this is why uh, it actually takes Athelstan over a year before he's crowned. Um, so he's uh, he's clearly kind of dealing with the fact that there are, are, are sizable factions in in uh, Wessex who are hostile to him taking over. But in but but in due course, he 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 wins acceptance from the West Saxons as well as from the Mercians, and he is crowned. Not in Winchester, the capital of um, 
of Wessex and not in Tamworth, the ancient capital of Mercia, which Athelflaed had recaptured from the Vikings. He's crowned Kingston on Thames, which yeah. the whole point of that is that it's directly on the border between Mercia and Wessex. Oh, and good. when and, and when the Archbishop of Canterbury crowns him, he crowns him as King Parata in Latin, equally of the Mercians and the West Saxons. And when I say crowned, I mean crowned. Because Athelstan, crown. Athelstan is the first king, Anglo-Saxon king, to be crowned with what we recognise as a crown. And it's kind of radiate. So, you know, those things going up, looking like the, the, the sun. Um, and, and that, and that is, mod- that is modeled on the crown of, of Roman emperors. So again, it's this idea that this is a, an imperial, you know, this is, this is an imperial status that Athelstan is laying claim to the inheritance of the Romans as rulers of all of Britain. And are they copying, um, the Franks at this point? Do you think, do you think like Charlemagne and, and co? Are they based, I mean, the Franks have obviously been the dominant, the most resplendent power in Western Europe. Are the Anglo Saxons copying them? Absolutely. So that's, a, that's a huge influence. Um, but, but the Franks themselves are copying the Romans. Romans. So that, okay. that's the kind of the pedigree. And of course, the other thing that, um, that the Anglo-Saxons have copied from the Franks is the idea of anointing. So the right. king, the king of what will become England, right the way up to the present day with Elizabeth II, is anointed. And that's yeah. an echo of uh, an Israelite ritual. So David is anointed. Saul is anointed. Yep. Solomon is D- anointed. Can I, dare I say that that is the sacral? <laughs> sacral. It's a sacral yeah. monarchy. Yes, it is. It's a sacral it monarchy. Right. Uh, now that we've got the sacral in, I think we should take a break. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Tom is performing heroically because obviously he's bearing the brunt of today's podcast because he's an Athelstan afile. Uh, and he's defying his cold, which is tremendous and very Anglo-Saxon behavior. <laughs> so we will return after the break with more Athelstan. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about Athelstan, officially, officially the top king of England. <laughs> um, the producer, Jack, was just giving me a hard time because he said I missed the best pun ever. I should have said that Tom was an Athelstan. Tom, you know what that means? It's some Not kind really. of it's a internet fan, expression, isn't it? Isn't it? It's some internet it's an Athelstan stan. Yeah, that the youngsters say. We don't have any truck with that kind of youthful talk on our podcast. Resonate the old fashioned. Um, So, Tom, he's just been crowned. He is the king equally of the Mercians and of the, uh, of Wessex, the people of Wessex. What does he do? What does he do that makes him so great? So, Athelstan's priority is what, what his relation is going to be with the Vikings in York. And the Vikings in York are ruled by a guy called Citric. Citric, I remember him from, uh, well, there's lots of people called Citric in the yeah. last kingdom. They're all called Citric, actually. So Citric has, um, he's, he's been a kind of a, a thorn in Anglo-Saxon side for a while, but he decides with Athelstan, he's going to try and cozy up to him. So yeah. a, a treaty is signed. It's agreed that Citric will marry Athelstan's sister. Um, and in 926, Citric comes south, comes to Tamworth, um, marries Athelstan's sister, goes back to York. And then the following year, Citric dies. Oh, that's very convenient. Yet again. <laughs> it, it, it is. And this is a key moment because you could imagine that that if you could imagine a kind of scenario where Britain ends up divided between an Anglo-Saxon kingdom south of the Humber, um, yeah. an Anglo-Scandinavian kingdom between the Humber and the Firth of Forth, and a yeah. kind of Gaelic-speaking kingdom in the Highlands. So to but, put it another way, Boris Johnson, Andy Burnham, Nicola Sturgeon. Exactly. But this doesn't happen. Because um, Athelstan decides that this is his opportunity to yep. grab York. And it, 
he he moves with incredible speed, much faster than the the obvious Viking candidate to succeed, Citric, who's a guy called Guthfrith, who's in over in Dublin. He's crippled by his ridiculous name. <laughs> he is. He is. Um, so Athelstan moves in and he annexes York. And he basically then uh, absorbs all the, the Anglian kingdoms that stretch right the way up to the Firth of Forth. So including um, uh, the, the Uhtred, you know, the Uhtred guys who- Bamba. Uh, and Bambra, who yeah. um, Bernard Cornwall writes about. Yeah. And this is a stunning moment because for the first time, all the English-speaking kingdoms, all the English-speaking peoples of Britain are acknowledging the rule of one king. And how long does that take, Tom? I mean, how how quick is that? you made that seem like it was a matter of months? Is it? It, it is months. Yes, it's a lightning strike. I mean, I wow. mean, it's it's kind of rickety. It's precarious. The um, Wulstan, the Archbishop of York, who had been very had a very very cozy time of it with the Vikings, doesn't really like having this Mercian West Saxon kind of upstart. So he's yeah. always he's a slightly kind of foxy character in the background, kind of negotiating with the Vikings. But Athelstan is. You know, I mean, he's he's right up there. So a couple of quick questions. Do the people in Northumbria who are, as it were, English speaking, do they believe they have a commonality with the West Saxons and the Mercians? So do they feel part of one family? Um, and actually, that's the second question was part of that. Do they even speak the same language? They do speak. They kind of speak the same language. But presumably very different dialects. Strong, yeah, very strong kind of dialects. But yes, essentially they do. Do they? Well, the evidence... <laughs> There are clearly Northumbrians who resent Athelstan's power. His his authority is precarious, yeah. but equally, um, he's a very, very intimidating figure. And the measure of that is that it's not just the um, the Anglian lords of Northumbria who answer a summons from Athelstan to come to basically Penrith, the River Amont in Cumbria in the Lake District, but um, the kings of what will become Scotland as well. So Owain, the king of, of Strathclyde, which is the, the Welsh-speaking kingdom that, um, I mean, it's basically kind of Glasgow stretching south into yeah. the Lake District. Um, and uh, Constantine, who is the king of Alba, yeah. which will become Scotland. People who've listened to our Macbeth episode will remember <laughs> yeah. the complexities of all this. Yeah. Let's not go there again, Tom. I can't deal with all those Malcolms again. <laughs> so so Athelstan holds this great kind of a, a council uh, at Penrith, where he summons the, the nobles of Northumbria, he summons um, Constantine, he summons uh, Owen, and they all come. And there's a, there's a kind of significance in this because um, Penrith has a Roman fort and it has standing stones. And the Roman fort is a reminder of the Romans who had laid claim to the whole of Britain. And the standing stones, in the opinion of the peoples of the time, are had been raised by the giants who were the first people to rule all of Britain. So Athelstan is implicitly saying that he's king, not just of an Anglo-Saxon realm, the king of, of England, but he's yeah. king of Britain, Rex Totius Britanniae, king of the whole of Britain. And, and Rex Cons Totius Britanniae, where's that from? Is that a coin? Is that an inscription? It's an inscription on the coins that he starts to mint. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the fact that Constantine, the king of Alba, and Owen, the king of Strathclyde, go there that that's implicit you know they're implicitly accepting this status but as what overlord emperor yeah What's... basically 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 as overlord yeah yeah um so the whole thing is is rickety but clearly impressive and i guess that there are two kind of great themes that that follow through athelstan's reign and that justify his position as 
the greatest as the winner of, of our World Cup of Monarchs. Um, one of them is that he's a great king of, I mean, he's, he's, he's a, a great peacetime king. He, he lays down the foundations for what will become the kingdom of England. It's law, it's education system. As Michael was saying, his, you know, his, his law, coinage, culture, assembly, politics, sacred geography, all that kind of stuff. But he is also a great warrior. He's a great king, you know, great, a great fighter. And he couldn't yeah. have been a great peacetime king if he'd not also been a, a great warrior king. So, so on that theme, um, obviously the Welsh princes, the, the king of Strathclyde, the king of Alba, massively resentful. Um, and in 934, Constantine has become so kind of, um, uh, resentful that Athelstan launches a, a massive invasion of the Highlands. And it's really the first time that a, a kind of a, a power in Britain based in the lowlands has invaded the Highlands since the time of the Romans. Yeah. So Athelstan leads this great expedition. Constantine kind of, you know, gets beaten up, comes crawling back. Um, and in 935, there is this a massive kind of Durbar that Athelstan holds uh, at the, for- the old Roman city of Sirencester in the amphitheatre. And Constantine is there. Owen is there. All the Welsh princes are there. Athelstan is enthroned as a, as a, a kind of massively Roman figure. He's chosen this place for very obvious reasons. And he's hailed not just as Rex, but as Basileus, the, the Greek for yeah. emperor, the way that the emperor in Constantinople is hailed. And he's described by a contemporary as the greatest and the most illustrious of the kings who in our own day rule here on earth. Because he, the, the kingdom that he is forging is, has a kind of integrity, has a, a kind of centralism that is unprecedented anywhere outside really the, the the caliphate in in southern spain or the byzantine empire so it's it's an astounding achievement so at this point this is the premier kingdom in western europe is that basically what you're saying absolutely yes um i mean you've got you so, so you've got you've got the the um you've got the, the kingdoms of the franks which but are they've kind all of, fallen out with each other well they? they're kind of they're devolving into becoming what will become france and germany yeah. Uh, and, and the measure of Athelstan's status is that his sisters marry them. So they marry Duke Hugh, who's the greatest um, lord in uh, in what will become France. And uh, Athelstan's sister, Edith, marries Otto the Great, who yeah. uh, the, the hairy-chested um, <laughs> hero of the charge against the, the Hungarians at Augsburg, who we, we've already play, talked about. Uh, yeah. Play Howard yeah. Shaw. Yes, this is exactly. what underpinned your last, uh, yes, exactly. your last um, monologue. So that, uh, and also he's, he's bringing up um, Viking princes in his, in his court. So he brings up a Norwegian prince called Hakon, who will go back and become the first Christian king of Norway. So he, he's a figure absolutely of, of kind of European status. And, and when we were doing the tournament, some people on Twitter um, you know, the, sort of as is so often the way people used the the sort of slightly spurious device of our of our tournament to sort of air their own cultural preoccupations and stuff. So there were Catholics first, you know, saying you should vote for Athelstan because he's he's a believer in the true faith, unlike the heretic Elizabeth and so on. But there were a few people who were sort of saying, oh, Athelstan would be the Remainerish vote because he's plugged into Europe and he believes himself to be a good European and all this stuff. I mean, is that completely? ridiculous and spurious or is there yeah, some of course it is truth? i mean it's, it's it's there's no point i mean there's, there's but he sees himself as part of a european absolutely fam- as alfred had done which is why he'd gone to rome yeah um, exactly yes, athelstan sees himself as part of of a christian i mean he wouldn't call it european he'd call it no, christian he, christendom, he's a part yeah. of christendom um and and athelstan's christianity is incredibly important to him 
Well, um, come on. I mean, this is your, this is a gift to you. Yeah, this is your... but, but, but I mean, you know, he, he so, so Athelstan feels that he's been, he, he is king by grace of God. He's an anointed yeah. king. And at, just as Alfred clearly did as well, he feels this incredible pressure that he will be answerable for the people of England when, before the, the day of judgment that he yeah. will have to answer to God for how he's ruled. And so there's this a, a constant sense of anxiety that he has to do right. Um, and you see this in almost every, you know, all his kind of peacetime legislation. So he, he's a great lawgiver. Uh, and there's this kind of wonderful example of this, that he inherits this law code, which says that children should be put to death at 10. That's the age harsh. of 10. And <laughs> also very bad for the future of the species. Well, so, so Athelstan says, you know, this is a bit harsh, isn't it? Oh, you don't mean all children should be put to death? No, sorry. Yes, uh, criminals. Yes, criminals. Yes, 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 yes. That wouldn't be good. Yes, That's positively yeah. Herodian. No, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a good policy. No, so 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 children can be put to death if they're convicted of a crime at the age right. of ten. And so yeah. Athelstan says this is you know this is a bit harsh. And so he consults yeah. with his his bishops, and he's always doing this. He's always you know he wants to make sure he's doing the right thing. And so they they raise the age to thirteen. Oh, that's very kind of them. But but Athelstan is still worried. And there's this, you know, this scribe writes about, it. he says, the king thinks it cruel to have such young people put to death and for such a minor offences as he has learned is the common practice. And so therefore they raise it to 15. So you could say that Athelstan, you know, I mean, is more on the Guardian than the Daily Mail side of this. Yeah. You know, he's, 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 yeah. he's uh, hence all the, hence all the angry comments, right? Yes, well, I mean, clearly, yes, 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 clearly. And what woke but, Tosh, as they would say. But he's also, and again, one of the one of the things that I th- again why Athelstan is I think not as well known as he should be is that um, his character is opaque. It's difficult well, to, to yeah. get a sense of him as a person, but occasionally you do. And so there is a charter that is issued in nine three two. He comes to um, to Amesbury, not far from Stonehenge, and he sits in court at Christmas. Uh, and on Christmas Eve, he issues a charter to. Um, a charter of land, a grant of land. And in it, he says that the person who gets the grant of land can have it, but must always provide food and shelter to those who are wandering and homeless. And it's obvious that he's thinking of of the Holy Family going to Bethlehem at that yeah. point. And this anxiety for those who have no shelter, those who have who, who are homeless. Um, so he, he issues warnings to his reeves, to his kind of, um, you know, his land managers. My wish it is that you should always provide the destitute with food, um, and when he issues um, his law case, he issues this kind of vast law code at, at Greatly. Um, anyone who's taken the train from uh, Waterloo to Salisbury, Greatly is one of the, it's next to Overton, the Overton window. You have Greatly just <laughs> down the, the line. Um, he is this hill fort. He, get, he holds this kind of great meeting on the, on the hill fort with his bishops, issues this law code. Um, and one of the things that he, he decrees there is that um, uh, only the king should issue coinage. So this is the basis of the, you know, what will become basically the English currency, the pound yeah, in the long run, it will become the pound. But Tom, going back to his personality, I mean, it's so frustrating, isn't it? When you think, I mean, you obviously are so familiar with Suetonius and Tacitus and all the, the writers on the Roman emperors, on the first emperors and so on. And you get such a strong sense of the character of Tiberius or Nero or somebody. Yeah. But it's, I mean, we don't even know, do we, really what he looked like? So Dominic, just on his characters, I just, I just want to say about the, the thing at, Gra- at, at, at Greatly, yes. that he issues this law code and he obviously feels that by issuing laws, things will then happen. But you then get this incredible flash of, of impatience that I think is very, it's actually rather Tony Blairish. 
say you know, remember Tony Blair saying he had scars on his back from trying to make you know things work and yeah. they didn't work um, and he says I Athelstan the king declare that I have learned how inadequately the public peace has been kept relative both to my wishes and to the provisions laid down at greatly and so his solution is to issue more laws and I think there you do right. get the sense of a, a very proactive king, but a king who is frustrated by the way that, that actually, you know, issuing laws doesn't seem to immediately sort everything out. His, um, his attempts at public service reform are being frustrated by the <laughs> inertia of Gordon Brown. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think you, you do get flashes of, of, of his personality, of his character there. But those are tiny, aren't they? I mean, if of you're, if, if you were sort of called in as the author of the book on Athelstan to advise some HBO series and they said, well, what, what's Athelstan like? Is he tall? is he short is he is he irascible is he i mean it's very hard i think he's earnest i think he's an he's earnest, earnest man yeah i think he's an earnest man i think he uh is dutiful uh i think he's visionary i think he's hard working uh i mean i think he, he pushes himself into an early grave um and he is clearly incredibly charismatic so uh, in a sense, I mean, I think that makes him uh, almost a kind of an ideal king. So he's a bit um, like me, basically. He's very like, yes, he's very like you. And of course, the, 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 the episode that absolutely defines him as a, char- uh, as a charismatic king is when in 937, Constantine, yeah. the king of Scotland, Owain, the king of Strathclyde, and um, the son of Guthfrith, Olaf Guthfrith's son. Right. Join in alliance. So that's the King of Scotland, the King of Strathclyde, and the King of Dublin, and launch what what will be remembered for generations after as the Great War. And Athelstan leads a mighty army and meets this um, Scottish Strathclyde Viking invasion force at a place called Brunanburh and defeats them. A great battle in English history, right? A great I mean, a battle in English battle. history. So, the theme of song in this year, King Athelstan, Lord of Earls, ring giver of warriors, and his brother as well, Edmund Atheling, achieved everlasting glory in battle with the edges of swords near Brunanburh. The problem is we don't know where Brunanburh is. Right. No, I, no, no idea at all, Tom? No, well, some people say it's Bromborough on the Wirral. Right. Um, others, Ma- Michael Wood argues that it's, um, it's by the Humber. Uh, I, my, my, for what it's worth, I, I mean, I think we will never know for sure, but I would guess that, I mean, the likeliest place, if you're thinking of Vikings from Dublin and people from Scotland coming, it's probably somewhere on, on the, uh, the Cumbrian coast, I would have thought. Yeah. I mean, it seems the likeliest place, but we'll never know. As Athelstan wins. And, and what is the consequence of that? Is it merely to return to the status quo of a overlordship of Britain or, or does well, it mean? The, yes, basically. Yes, essentially. But he dies very, he dies a couple of years later after that. I think basically yep. worn out and everything then falls to pieces. Um, well, here's the, the thing, Tom, if he's the greatest king um, and, and it all falls to pieces, I mean, that doesn't say much for the other kings. Okay. I mean, well, his legacy okay. is, is fragmented and flawed. Well, I right? think what it says is, is that it, it's, it speaks volumes about his prestige because the fact that he dies, the Vikings come back, they recapture York. Um, they penetrate so far south, actually, that they, they sack Tamworth, the, the capital of right. Mercia. Um, but that passage I read from the, the great epic poem on, um, on Brunenburg, Edmund Atheling, that is um, Athelstan's younger half-brother. And he succeeds. And he very rapidly takes back York. He gets up into Strathclyde. He defeats the Strathclyde as he 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 um, he asserts his dominance over um, the whole of Britain again. The Vikings come back one last time, so that's Eric Bloodaxe. But yeah. basically, they die on the kind of the, the moors above York, and and then that is then it from that point on. So Edgar, um, who is uh, Athelstan's nephew, 
um, gets crowned at Bath again, a kind of great Roman city. And from that point on, essentially, it, England is established. Its, its borders are established. Its, 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 its monarchy is established. Its currency is established. Its language, its religion, it's all unitary. And the, this kind of precocious nation state has been established. Now, we, you talked about Tolkien. There yeah. is this fabulous theory mentioned by the clerk of Oxford, um, Eleanor Parker. I don't know if you've come across it. She has a on Twitter, wonder, yeah. yeah, wonderful, wonderful writer about the Anglo-Saxon ritual year, but also generally about Anglo-Saxon saints and the church and, and myths more generally. And she suggested that perhaps um, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia stories, that you, you remember that Edmund is the kind of the younger brother and yeah. uh, Peter becomes the king of Care Paravel. Right. Edmund is seduced by Turkish delight. But perhaps, but perhaps uh, Peter is modelled on Athelstan, which I think... Really? Is, uh, yeah, I love that theory. Do you think I that's mean, true? Who knows? I don't know. But it's a great theory. So Athelstan has created England. He's not created Britain, though, has he? No, well, he I mean, creates England. Yeah. And and that idea, even though there's, there's, there's disasters to come, with more Danes much further down the line, and Canute and then the Normans, that that idea that Athelstan has created of, a, of an... I mean, you use the phrase nation state. Of a, of a, is that, I mean, historians, I've heard, um, historians like Patrick Wormold argue about yeah. England as a state and all this kind of thing. Yeah. So as, as arg- arguably, possibly the world's first true nation state. Uh, Denmark would be its only rival. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I think, again, that's interesting that, that Denmark and England, that their history is so intimately kind of tied up with each other at this point. But the, the, the process of fighting each other and learning from each other uh, helps to create these. Yeah, I think I, I think you can call them nation states without yeah. too much risk of anachronism. And that's Athelstan's achievement, you think? A different king and a different somebody less skillful, less fierce, less pious would not have been able to achieve that, do you think? I, I think, you know, we said this before that Athelstan is the heir of Alfred and Athelflaed and Edward uh, and really the creation of England is a tribute to all the, all four of those remarkable figures, but Athelstan plays, you know, he is the, he, he is the man who forges what we can recognize today as England. Okay. So Tom, two questions before we go. First of all, if Athelstan is such a Titanic figure, why is he not better known? Now I know he had a lot of fun with the, the daily mail comments, but the truth is most people walking down the street in England probably have barely heard of him so why do you think he fell out of the public imagination in that way well i think that um there's a kind of very broad answer to that which is that 1066 plays such a key role in in the imagination of the english that almost everything before that has been erased so secondary school you go to secondary school you study 1066 you don't study the 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 making of england i mean i think the french or the americans would find that very peculiar. Yeah. I think also it's the fact that, you know, as we've said, he's a slightly shadowy figure. So one of the reasons why Alfred is remembered is that um, this bishop called Assa wrote a life of him. Um, William of Malmesbury, who I've mentioned before, Athelstan gets buried at Malmesbury. Um, in fact, you ask, what does Athelstan look like? Um, according to William of Malmesbury, his grave got opened up and there were kind of long golden braids were still, had right. still survived. So, and Athelstan was, was a, a slight man of average height. So that's the, the description of him. Um, William of Malmesbury says that there was a book, a, a, a life of Athelstan that he was drawing on. Um, oh, it's lost. But, but the, but the book is lost. Um, Michael Wood again is wonderful on this, uh, trying to kind of resurrect what it might have said and what it might have been. Um, but I think, I think he's a kind of shadowy figure, but I think above all, it's, it's his, his labors were so great that we have come to take them for granted. I think people in England tend to take the existence of England for granted. People think, you know, England's always existed. 
And I think I mean, because I think it could because, have been Germany, couldn't it? It could yeah, have been fragmented for so long. Absolutely. And I think that because um, because England kind of maps onto roughly uh, the, the Roman province of Britannia, there's a kind of assumption that the, the you know England has kind of exists right back into primordial times. But it's simply not the case. We could, you know, as I said, we could have had a very Great Britain could have been divided up in very very different ways. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that England exists, that you have this unitary kingdom which contains the angle the angles and the saxons a, a kingdom that it is entirely appropriate and legitimate to call anglo-saxon is entirely down i mean, I mean is, is hugely hugely down to athelstan and i think it's kind of wonderful that he's uh that he's won well why did he win tom i mean after eighty four thousand votes uh he was the punter's choice I mean, very narrowly beating elizabeth I, who obviously was the massive favorite and, and understandably why do you think is it what does that say about our listeners that do you think well i think i think it's a tribute to the the immense <laughs> <laughs> historical literacy and good sense of our listeners um i, I suppose i suppose i've been droning on about athelstan for so long that perhaps yeah. some of the some of some of my followers may have been influenced by that perhaps i don't know um but i think that there there has been a kind of process of of rediscovery of this particular period i think michael woods has has played a crucial role um yeah uh, but I think more generally, uh, you know, you've had The Last Kingdom, the Bernard Cornwall novels that adapted into TV series. You've got The Vikings. Um, yeah. And I, I, and it may be that um, the kind of the, the strains that the United Kingdom is coming under, the kind of the rise of Scottish nationalism perhaps has in, in, in England has kind of awoken an interest in, you know, where, where does England come from? Yeah, perhaps I'm sure that's, that's part true, of it actually. as well. I'm um, sure that's true. I mean, what I would say is that the story of um, – the House of Wessex from Alfred through to Athelstan and his heirs shows how hard it is to forge the United Kingdom out of different constituent parts and how heroic I think the effort is. Very good. Well, that's a great note on which to end. So, Tom, we will be back on Monday with beginning the great tournament roundup by looking at the losers, by looking at people like Oliver Cromwell, um, uh, George V, Henry VII, Henry II, a, a great range of characters. So we'll be back doing that on Monday. We'll have a, another, probably another podcast, I should imagine, on then the people who got to the later rounds. Um, and you can go back to that podcast that we did with Tracy Borman if you go to our, our sort of however you access our podcast. I don't know how you do it. But anyway, you can go back and you can find our podcast about Elizabeth I. But this is Athelstan's day, isn't it? Um, it is. So well done to Athelstan. Well they're done dancing to, in the mead halls. They are. They're dancing in the streets of Tamworth, Winchester, of Wolverhampton, of Winchester. Yep. Um, and uh, on that note, uh, have a great weekend and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Quet. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, 
there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.